moments, I think this is on, yes? You ever have one of those moments where you, uh, you're completely unaware of what's going on around you, but you think something's happening, but it's actually not happening? Well, that actually happened a few moments ago. I jumped on stage for some odd reason, and thinking that there wasn't someone assigned to do the prayer, and I went ahead and jumped in and interrupted. Oh, well, you know, you have those days, and so my apologies to Jim and everyone else here on stage. Thank you for uh, adjusting. That's, that's, that's when you have a really good worship team who can adjust on the fly for that. Amen? All right. Thank you for your patience in that. Let's uh, stand now and um, prepare to read from God's Word this morning. Our text this morning will be from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 5. Let us hear the word of the Lord together. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. But it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. As Justin noted in his prayer, today we're going to be talking about not being chained to the judgments of men, to be controlled by what others think, what you might say, fear of man. Fear of man is an epidemic that has run the course of human history. Wall Street Journal writer Joseph Epstein notes that the opinion poll has been around for more than a century now, or almost a century now, and it gained most authority in the 1940s with the polling methods of George Gallup, which most people are familiar with, Gallup. Now we put way too much stock in those polls, do we not? Epstein writes, so, so endemic is polling that it feels as if what a politician does is less important than whether the public approves or disapproves of what the politician does. That's pretty true, right? That's why he notes Abraham Lincoln was somewhat of um, an exception. He says President Lincoln is an example of how to seek wise counsel and input from others without letting it run your life or run his life. Epstein writes the following, Early in his presidency, he set aside morning office hours to receive visitors, many seeking favors or attempting to exert influence or merely wishing to shake the hand of the nation's leader, and these visits offered the president the opportunity, a good opportunity in these days before scientific public opinion polls, to get some idea of how the ordinary, how the ordinary people felt about him and his administration and their policies. And, their, and yet Lincoln, aware 
as he was to public sentiment, never allowed it ultimately to alter his policies or principles, which is one of the reasons he was a great man. What made Lincoln a great president was, was that he was a principled man, and he would check his principles against public sentiment. Nonetheless, he led, his principle, he led with his principles regardless of how or what kind of backlash he might receive accordingly. And friends, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a refreshing leader that we need in every age. And when we think about the way even churches are run today, how many times are churches run by leaders who are worried about public sentiment, the congregational sentiment, how they are viewed by the world even beyond the church about how their leaders lead. And our culture that is so controlled and is so prone to counsel by public opinion and frankly even public intimidation, it's fresh when we find leaders like Abraham and maybe pray for leaders like Abraham Lincoln who will not be controlled by the fear of men or their fear of failure. Today in our text in uh, 1 Corinthians, here's what we're going to talk about. When Christians esteem God's judgment above their own, we can live free of our own self-deception and the judgments of men. Let me say that again. When we esteem God's judgment above our own, we can live free from our own self-deception and the judgments of men. And our friends, I, we need this in the church more in, in this hour than I think uh, we would probably say in, in the last several centuries. So let's pick up a little bit about where we left off last week. Paul's thoughts last week led us to consider the fact of how to build the church. And in building the church, it needs leaders who lead faithfully and they build on um, the proper foundation. And so one of the big pressures, as we've been saying over and over again over these first, first several weeks in our study, is that this church has been strangled by the divisions over which leader should be made the big deal, right? Which one is the one who has all the gifts and skills and things that they need in order to build a church that will mesmerize the world and be relevant to the world, perhaps, um, and so you'll remember from last week that Paul stated in verse 10 that the foundation that this church must be built on must be what? Or who? Christ, right? And Christ alone. And therefore he builds off of that foundation saying, then okay, then incredible biblical leaders are those who do the same. And so Paul says there will be leaders who will do lean in one of three different directions. We talked about this last week. They will lean towards carefully building on that foundation. I mean, carefully patiently, uh, intentionally, and they would receive a good reward in the end. That what they build will last so long as Jesus tarries. But then there will be those leaders who are genuine Christians, but they're building carelessly on that foundation, and what they build will eventually fall apart over time. It will not last until Jesus returns. We can see this in ministries and churches all over the world. And then there's these third category leaders who just frankly 
disregard the foundation of the church and they want to tear down the very foundation of the church and it's those who tear down the foundations are those who are looking to themselves to lead the church and their innovations for the church and so what we get when we get to verse 18 in our text today Paul is going to show the church that those who tear down the church are those who are looking too much to themselves to lead the church and not to Christ in the ways Christ has called his church to be built upon and the members of the church, and let's just be honest, sometimes we pay too much attention um, to the gifts of our leaders and the ability to draw a strong crowd and to be savvy and culturally, uh, um, you know, attentive and whatever else. We get so far from that and that this is an issue that we see in every age in the church. I'm going to give you a little historical rundown of that here in just a few minutes because this is not a new thing. This is a thing that's kind of followed the church and leaders and the church members find themselves always wanting to improve upon the church and improve upon God's ways. And I hope I can show you that that has, every time that's happened, it's failed. It's been, a fail, it's been a project of failure. So again, as we get into this text today, Paul isn't going to instruct the Corinthians to stop looking, verse 18 through 4, 2, stop looking to themselves, stop being self-deceived, all right, and their ingenuities and rather look to Christ who gives us everything we need as the church. So there's really just two points here. You find them in your little guide. It's very simple points and hopefully be easy to follow. One is stop looking to yourself, all right? Amen? We all need that reminder every once in a while. Stop looking to ourselves. We don't have all the answers, right? Don't look to yourselves in anything. And number two, do look to Christ in everything. Don't look to yourselves in anything, but do look to yourself, do look to Christ, I'm sorry, in everything. So let's just look at that first point. Do, don't look to yourself. We're going to kind of pull out this from verses 18, uh, chapter 3, verse 18 through the verse 2 of chapter 4. Let's just kind of begin. Let no one deceive you, Paul says. Let no one deceive, I'm sorry, let no one deceive himself. It's very easy to fall into self-deception. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. So there's the big question. What happens to a leader who depends on himself too much and not Christ is the question. Paul wants to help the, readers, the, the leaders of these churches and the members of this church recognize that in every age there's this kind of subtle creep that comes in of self-deception. Leaders fall into this. Church members fall into this. But they're particularly talking about these are the kind of leaders you need to be looking for and the kind of ways you want them to lead. Let no one deceive himself. Self-deception is oftentimes one of the greatest challenges that human race faces on a continual, like, repeat. We just kind of fall into it. We don't see it coming. We get into this subtle change, and it's just there. It's, it's one thing to deceive, be deceived by someone else. It's a whole nother thing to be deceived by ourselves. Lacking self-awareness and lacking the things that we need to see in our own lives is far more serious sometimes than being deceived by someone else. When we're not aware of the things that rule our own hearts and the things that we use to grade everything that's in front of us. And so Paul's understanding of self-deception is clear here in this text. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age. So he's, he's saying, don't deceive yourself for those of you among you, among us, the church, right, in this age. When he says among you, he's talking about, I'm talking to people among the church. I'm not talking to people outside of the church. I'm talking to you among us, 
the leaders that are here, the members that are here. Like, if he thinks he's wise, he's deceiving himself because he thinks he's wise in this age, in this moment. He thinks he has something unique to add to the church's mission in this moment. And so the Christian stands, as you and I both know, in between two kingdoms. We stand with one foot in the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom, we might call that today the church, right? As we look and image forth the kingdom of God that is to come. But then we also always stand within the kingdom of the world. And so many times we blur the distinctions and we use different principles and we cross these things up and we use, king, we use wisdom of the world to try to influence how we do kingdom of God stuff. And so if anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, what Paul is saying here, if he thinks he's wise, he's, he's looking to his own wisdom, he's looking beyond God's word, in other words. He's, it, look, to be clear, this is not wisdom he's talking about, but a Christian can't necessarily glean insights from the world. So let's make sure we're clear about that. But what he's saying is they're, they're looking beyond God's word for the, for, to understand what it means to be a Christian, to be faithful in the world. He's, he's looking or she's looking beyond God's word, for ways in which we can innovate, make things more relevant. This is the Corinthian church's way. And frankly, friends, this is the way of the church today. We're always looking beyond what God has given us, and we're not satisfied with what God has given us, and therefore we have to feel like we have to improve upon what God has given us. This, this is why we need churches that embrace the ordinary ways, right? The old ways. And I don't mean old ways and kind of like the cranky old ways, right? You met those people, right? I'm not talking about that. The old ways that are rich and, and beautiful and they've, they've lasted they've, the test of time. He says, look, if, you, if anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, in other words, understand your wisdom has limits and you're using wisdom with limits to try to press or change or to uh, the, the church that doesn't have wisdom limits. Like God's given us wisdom in his word about how the church should live until he returns. There's always an attempt to improve. Now let me just make sure I'm clear about something. It doesn't mean there's a church that we need to be smart about some of those intangibles, right? Like we've got larger, more people coming and visiting we got to think about how to practically receive and love and care for the people God's given us. And that requires just some general insights. There's no specific biblical principles on all those kinds of things. But what we're talking about in terms of just what it means to be Christian. And what it means to do, do, to do church life in its most fundamental ways. And so Paul then says the antidote to this self-deception is very clear. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly to God. So what Paul's doing here is he's confronting the natural pride, brothers and sisters, that resides in the hearts of men and women. And, and he's calling those of us who would lean too much on our own prideful wisdom to die to ourselves in this age and in every age to come and die to that so that we might be a be foolish to the world. Like there's something beautiful about a people who choose to be foolish before the world. They can't comprehend why we do what we do and why we believe what we believe and what values we have. They are just, they just see us as foolish. And, and, and from God's perspective, being foolish is actually what it means to be what? Wise. 
That true wisdom is to embrace the life of Christ in all, as all in all. This is one of those like, notes that we, will, we, can, we need to keep picking on and picking on and picking on in the life of the church and in our preaching and our teaching day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out. Because it doesn't matter what you're talking about or what the latest fad is. It, it, the church was antiquated in the world's eyes from the very beginning. To believe and do and, and say the things we do was antiquated. It was received as, in some ways, bigoted. It was seen as being fools in the world's eyes. So, and God just says from the very beginning, Paul says from the beginning, in order for you to really be wise, you must be willing to embrace the posture of a fool, a fool of Christ. In God's eyes, embracing the foolishness of Christ is actually living wisely. We saw that in verse 21, um, turning to 24 in chapter 1. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, Paul uses two references here in this text that help us grasp the point. One is from Job and one is from, Psalm, from the Psalms. Job 5, he says he, uses, he catches the wise in their craftiness. This is one of Job's uh, uh, counselors. And it's not used exactly the same way Job uses it, but the way in which Paul is using it here, he's using this word crafty, is kind of cunning. So in other words, he's saying God sees your cunning ways. He sees that you're not fully resting and satisfied in the things he's given you. He says, and you're so, I see your craftiness. I see your cunning. They're always believing the church has to conform or improve or become better, must become bigger in order to extend your relevancy, or whatever it may be. But he says, the Lord knows the thoughts, in the second one, Psalm 94, of the wise. He knows how futile they are. God sees the things as, these things as empty. He recognizes our attempts as empty and powerless. See, the church must, friends, this is not a new thing, the church must guard on these things in every age. And we know this to be a reality in our own age. This is not just a, the things that you and I face today and the position and posture we must take with the world is not just a today thing. This is, this is not new. Paul was dealing with this in the earliest churches. And it has been recycled in various ways all the way through church history. And I said that a few minutes ago. Can I just take you on a brief church history survey about how the church has always tried to take pragmatic things of the world and make them churchly things and now how that then hurt the church's witness in the long run so we can go back to our own protestant reformation heritage i'll go back as far back as far as that okay and we know that we split off from the roman church roman catholic church why because the church the roman catholic church was driven by kind of a culture shaping and a culture changing and controlling a pragmatism so the kernel of truth in the Roman church, if we want to give them the best reading, is a church should be a central display of truth in the world. But unfortunately, what happened was the church's zeal for cultural standing led them to blur the lines between the church and the civil realm and the church and the state, and therefore created this same paradigm where they kind of controlled and wielded all this power over their world. And that was never the way God intended this church to be. And so what they would do is, and we see this, by the way, in new places today, 
they will accommodate eventually biblical worship so that they can control the masses. And this is why they did the mass, and this is why they did rosaries, and this is why they did confessionaries, and all the ways, the ways that they did is because it was about a priestly class of people who said, well, you can't do this on your own, so we've got to control the narrative, so we are the ones who control what's happened. So then you had the Pope who can speak at Cathedral, right? He can speak in new revelation. You had a priestly class who monitored and and, 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 did the, and led the mass and, and then led people in order for you to repent. You had to do the rosary and you just you had all these different things. And you had to go to confessionary with your priest on a regular basis to stay in right standing. What was this all about? This was about the church controlling the masses. Because the masses weren't, res- weren't responsible enough to read the Bible on their own and study the Bible on their own. And so they created this world of accommodation. Well, then the, Refor- the Reformation was a, hey, no, we're going to get back to the Word, Sola Scriptura. We're going to get back to faith alone and justification by faith alone and Christ alone by grace alone, right? Revealed by Scripture alone. And it was wonderful. Things went well for a while. Then obviously there are lots of wars and divisions in different nations. But it wasn't too long after those kinds of things kind of settled down that people began to get unsettled again. We, we have to add something new. And so what was the next level? Revivalism. It was revivalism of the first and second great awakening. And, and many of us might look at those things as fondly, and maybe there are some positive aspects to the first and second great awakenings, but what was behind them was just this sense of, well, let's read, let's read them the best way. They wanted to avoid cold, dead orthodoxy. So they looked at our forms, and they looked at the church's forms and said, well, no one's going to experience God in that. So therefore, we must seek revival. We must seek the work of the Spirit. And there was just this kind of desire to do that. Again, there, maybe there were some people who have genuine experiences. We're not here to say whether or not those things were true or not. But well, here's the thing is that ultimately they measured faithfulness by what? Not by what God revealed in his word. But they measured faithfulness by experience. What you were experiencing in the church. Are you raising your hands enough, friends? You guys who don't raise your hands, you need to get loosened up a little bit, right? And in any other manner of things. It could be any of that. But then after revivalism took hand, everyone's like, okay, great, we're getting our spiritual high now, and that's affecting all of American evangelicalism. What comes after that as the Enlightenment kind of unfolds? Protestant liberalism, another form of pragmatism. So you had pragmatism of the Roman church, you had pragmatism of the revivalists who said, listen, we've got to have better experience. You had pragmatism of the high theological guys out there who said, listen, our truth cannot be compatible with the truth of this world, so therefore we've got to accommodate our truth in order to be found friendly to the world. So what did they do? They wanted to remain relevant in this new enlightened, post-enlightenment age, but what did they do? They jettisoned core biblical values. So it doesn't matter if Jesus was born of a virgin. It doesn't matter if Jesus atoned for your sin. It doesn't really matter if there's one Adam. It doesn't really, if Adam was the first human being. It doesn't matter about all these things. They just basically said all of that doesn't matter. Why? Because if we don't, we're going to be looked at as kooks to the world, and therefore, what happens? We become irrelevant. What, what's interesting is, is all the mainline denominations that followed that path, their buildings are getting more and more empty every year. They're bleeding people because they have nothing to offer the world. In their desire to be pragmatic, they gutted the church. And then, but also, let's, be, let's, be, let's, let's also kind of pick on some, of our, some folks that maybe in our own tribe, our fundamentalist friends and our biblicist friends, okay? And listen, listen again, what was, the, what, was the, what was the what they were trying to do? 
They were trying to defend truth, right? Amen. But the problem was they defended truth in a more retreatist kind of way. Protect ourselves from the big bad world, like isolationist kind of way. Or, or maybe we, we, they got fearful they had to use and read the Bible the same way that they did, so, but they had to find different ways to defend the Bible using the same tools as our Protestant liberal friends. So they divorced the church from church history, and they became kind of this isolated kind of floating, floating head of evangelicalism that has basically dominated most of American evangelicalism to this day. And so then we get into the modern age, we get the modern evangelicals, and they are pragmatists to the whole. And I'm a, I consider myself an evangelical. But what happens is, is they have this mentality of the ends justify the means, yes? And so what happens is they say, listen, the mission means everything. So, so long as we don't compromise those very core things as Christians, they'll still hold on to Bible. They'll hold on to some of the essentials, but they'll kind of de-emphasize them. And what, what, are, they, what are they doing? They're embracing kind of a orthodox minimalism. And I just, as long as you remain faithful on these four, five, or six issues, you can say you're a Christian um, and the gospel will continue to go forward. But the problem with all of that is what it does is it actually fractures the church more because then all of these denominations that have worked hard at their confessions become now an enemy to the church. Those who really want to stay sound and they want to dive deep into the word and confessions, they end up falling by the wayside and they're considered the ones who are hurting the church. And it's not true because the mission means everything, right? Well, the mission means a lot, but Jesus is the center of the church, and who he has said is the church, and we must be there. And so then, the, then now getting to the last phase of this is they got progressivism, and it's just evangelicalism 2.0. But it's those people who will say, they don't go as far as the postmodern liberal, post-liberal, I mean, the liberal Protestants, and, and, and jettison what they believe. They'll say they believe the same thing you and I believe. But there's room for conversations on gender identity. There's room for sexual holiness issues. There's room for this. We can, and that's the age in which we're living in right now. All of that I just explained to you. And I'm sorry, I wanted you to kind of see the, the, the unfolding of church history. Listen, all of what I've just told you is rooted in what? Self-deception. Believing you're wise in this age. Pragmatism. We can improve upon it so we can protect the church's relevancy. And Paul's final judgment there in 21 is this, let no one boast in men. The church doesn't need men who improve upon the church, improve upon God's word. They don't need leaders like that. So what do they need to look for in their leaders? Those who look to Christ in everything, number two. And so you pick up in verse 21. For all things are yours, he says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life and death or the present, future, all are yours. In other words, what Paul is saying here is literally your leaders are your gifts to you. They're not your idols. They're not your overlords. They're not any of these things. They're gifts to you to show us Christ, to show us our need for Christ. And so to the degree your leaders are faithful in that, they must follow them and, and rest and trust them. That's what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 11 and 12 as well in other places of the Bible. Paul and Peter and Apollos were not leaders who were overlords or super spiritual people or even the elders that they raised up in these churches, but they were gifts to the church. And friends, and since we're in this stage, it's important that we look to the people God has given us and, and, we, and we, we, we look to the gifts that God's given us in our leaders, elders, deacons, whoever, 
as gifts. Faithfulness and those who are faithful at ministry at large beyond this church, those leaders and those readers we love to listen to, right? Amazing. It's what it should be. So those who look to Christ are those ones who look to Christ, Christian leaders to, I'm sorry, look to, uh, look to Christ to provide Christian leaders who are gifts to the church. Those who look to Christ are those who look to leaders who recognize that the church is not theirs. It's not owned by them. Look what it says there in 23. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. You and I belong to Jesus. I was talking to our youth in baptism this morning. That's the fundamental thing that we want to remind ourselves as we get down the road in life, in Christian life, is that, that we are belong to Christ. Christ is the one who secured our redemption. I did not do that for you. John Piper did not do that for you. Your favorite preacher did not do that for you. Christ is the one who secured our redemption, and any leader who has any credibility whatsoever will always have that as his aim and will understand that this church and every church like it is not their church. It's not mine. It's not the elders. We've been given a stewardship to love and shepherd and care for this church, to stand before God's word and stand accountable to God's word. Yes and amen. But it's not our church. It's Christ's church. And it says Christ is God's. And that's a funny way of saying, in other words, Christ came to do the will of the Father. The gospel is not our invention, friends. I didn't conjure that up out of this Bible that's very old, this book that's very old. The gospel is the work of God and the decision of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who sent the Son to what? Come and carry out the work of redemption, carry out the covenant of redemption. And that's why he goes to Matthew 28. Again, something we read Right? The other therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you always until the end of the age. This is what Jesus is saying. This is the message. I came to give you this message. Now I send you out with this same message so that all people will know. And so we do look to Christ in everything when we look to Christ to provide leaders who are gifts. We look to Christ to have leaders who recognize their position. They're not the ones who own the church. And third, they look to Christ for Christian leaders who are faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. That's what it says there, verse four, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. This is how we should, you should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required the stewards of stewards that they be found faithful. Any leader in the church where theology is secondary should give you a little bit of a gut check. I, I run into it all the time. Even guys that I know love and believe the same things I do, they, they get a little uncomfortable when you get the, 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 the guy in the room that really wants to dive into the, the deeper end of the pool, right? And I don't think that that necessarily means we got to dive into the deep end of the pool and everything we say and do. I certainly don't believe that. But theology should be important. And it drives me crazy when leaders say, we don't need all of these, you know, you're just being dry and, and, and everything when you just want to read all the little, you know, all the different details of the Bible and you want to parse out all these kinds of things. And I want to go, then why do we have this in the first place? Why did God find it in his infinite wisdom to give us this? Did he, I, okay, I had, a, I had someone tell me this years ago in a conflict in the church that we served at previously. 15, 16 years ago, it ended up in a church split. And one of the ladies said, all I need is John 3, 16, and that's all I will ever need. 
what? I mean, I, I seriously sat in the room. This person was on staff, and I, I sat in the room, and I was like, I think I had that response. I just kind of had this, like, dumbfounded smile. I was like, what? you are paid by a church, and that is your responsibility, and that's what you just said? Man, churches need pastors, and they need deacons, and they need Sunday school teachers, and they need children's Sunday school teachers who do theology for the health of the church and for the vitality of the church. I believe this church is becoming what it is today because we are working hard. Not necessarily this all me, by the way. This is not a pat on the back for me. But that we're, making, we're trying to be as serious as we can to dive into the word and to dive into the confessions of the church. And so then that's the measure that they're going to be measured on, right? It says there at the end, and moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. I will stand before God, and the elders will stand before God, and the pastors of other churches will stand before God, and how we steward the mysteries of Christ. How long, like when, if you're not a member of this church, or maybe the Lord leads you to go to another church, some of the things you should ask about any leader that you feel like the Lord may lead you to sit under in a local church is, here's one of the ones I would say, what's his long game look like? Has he always got a new idea? Or is he just like his long game is, I'm just going to open a Bible and I'm going to love my people and I'm going to shepherd them. And can he just stay there even if what he's doing there is not all that flashy? I, I find a lot of times that leaders leave churches every two or three years because they've kind of, they've kind of played all their cards. And I'm like, man, I, I, I don't even know. I haven't even started yet. <laughs> Seven years in this. We've got a long way to go. I just, I mean, and I'm not saying that leader, church and leaders don't need to change churches, and that happens from time to time. And some reasons they get pushed out of churches, and, I, and there can be a lot of reasons for that. But I just think at the end of the day, man, when we, when we, I want you to know that I'm not here to be your expert. I'm just here to play in the long game. And our elders are here to play in the long game. And our deacons are here to play the long game. And I don't have a bag of tricks over here trying to figure out the next play for you. Like, we got a lot of decisions to make in the church, and we're like, we're all over here going, I don't know. I don't know how to do this. I, I, I don't know what the next step looks like. But we're going to figure this out. And God's going to be faithful, and he's going to work it out. We don't have a bag of tricks. We just have the Bible. We have you. We love you, and we're going to keep leading. That's it. And so then at the end of the day, we look to Christ in everything. And, and most importantly, lastly, is we look always and only to Christ to judge ourselves. Just look at what it says there in verse 3 of chapter 4. But with me, it is very small thing that I should be judged by any of you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. That first part there. It's a very small thing that, you, that I would be judged by you. I love that. There's this tendency to live in a world and live under the tyranny of human judgments. To live under the tyranny of uh, fear of man and what other people think of us. As I noted in our opening about Abraham Lincoln, it's, it's so common for us to live so much fearing what the world will do with us or think of us. Frankly, sometimes it's even hard to think about what we might think of each other. And it's just easier, by the way, in our day and age. This is not new, by the way. 
people have always had criticisms of leaders and can criticisms of churches and criticism of systems. We just got a really big megaphone called the social media now that makes it even worse. Right? But Paul would have us know there's something about a good leader and perhaps something about ourselves, that judgment from others is a small thing. It really is. It doesn't mean that we don't get in this room, we do members' meetings, and we want the church to engage meaningfully in what we do here. That's not what we're talking about here. But there is this sense in which we put too much emphasis on human courts, as he might say. They're, 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 they're finite. They may seem intimidating. It may seem wearying when we find that there's a Christian leader running some you know, Fortune 500 company, and now they're calling for his head because he actually believes what the Bible says. And you got people calling for his head. Well, he shouldn't be leading that company because he doesn't love these people or that people or that person. Friends, judgment of the world is a small thing, especially in light of stuff like that. Perhaps the leaders the church needs are something different, something more like Abraham Lincoln. That they have the resolve to stand on the truth of Scripture, yet do so with what? Gentleness? Patience? Dare I say, uh uh-oh, winsomeness? That we just have the ability to slow down and just be patient. We were talking about this. One of our young ladies was talking about this in baptism this morning. About how to love another person who says they're a believer and they're kind of drifting from the Lord. They don't have to do that. And one of the things that Ben, our, one of our youth leaders back here said, he's like, you know, th- there's a long game here. There's a patience here. We got to be speak truthful to them and we got to find the right context. But we were just trying to, at the end of the day, it's a long game. But we're going to be truthful. And sometimes the judgments of men might cause us to fall out of favor with even the closest of friends. But it's not just that there's a tendency to live in the tyranny of other people's judgments. Paul even goes to, I don't even judge myself. Look what, you know, he has, there's this tendency to live in the tyranny of our own judgments of ourselves. I don't even judge myself, he says. I don't even judge myself. I mean, I would love to live as free as Paul lives. Because I don't know about you, but I live under self-condemnation constantly. <laughs> I live under these judgments of myself going, I fail at every turn, I feel like. And how many times does our lives as faithful followers of Jesus, do we just die to, and I, this is one of my statements these days, we die to the thou, uh, a thousand cuts, the death of a thousand cuts, because we're always like killing ourselves because of every little judgment we have of ourselves. And we live under the tyranny of our own self-evaluation of ourselves. I spend a great deal of time with pastors throughout the month, and I have a group of guys that you guys know that I meet with every month, and I can tell you that pastors live under this tyranny constantly. I know that I live under this tyranny more often than I'd like to, and the reason we started this group is so we could provide a space for pastors to come and be honest and not feel the, the judgment of other pastors, and we can, we, can, we can bear the load of that same self-condemnation that we all feel too often. Because at the end of the day, we want to get to where Paul gets. That which Christ's judgment over us, that's all we really need. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, he who will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each of you will receive his condemnation. Each one will receive his condemnation from God. I believe the kind of leaders that Paul is talking about, the kind of leaders that lead churches for a long, long time are the ones, are those who stand and rest in the judgment of Christ. 
And it's, it's Jesus' judgment that's going to expose what is real, what is really real. Not the superficial things we do as Christians, not the superficial things that oftentimes pastors do that blur the real. Paul warns of being deceived earlier on in our passage for this very reason. And I think this is especially true for pastors and leaders in the church, those looking for their pastors. And those, by the way, in the church who look for their pastors to be the answer men, to be the experts. I will study the scriptures with you, but I am not the expert in this book. I trust that a lot of faithful men, we try to be thin in the faithfulness of the church, church's tradition and, and the faith once delivered. Yes, all of those things, but I don't have all the answers. And neither does any of the elders here or any of the deacons here. At the end of the day, a pastor worth following, I think, is one who finds his commendation from God. And his worst moment does he return to Jesus. When he feels like he's really boshed it up, does he have enough guts to return to Jesus? Or does he push it down and pretend to be something he's not? You've met that guy, right? Or you've heard about that guy. Some of you have actually been in ministries under that guy who pretended to be something he wasn't because he was too afraid to run back to Jesus. The very gospel, by the way, he preaches. I don't want to be that guy. I have been that guy. But I don't want to be that guy. He rests continually in the grace of God. The one who gives him salvation and only in Christ. He stands before God's word and seeks to lead himself and his church from the word of God. He limits the voice of, of his own finite wisdom in his head and the world's wisdom. And he leans on the voice of God through his word. And so we're getting to transition to some really fun topics in 1 Corinthians over the next few weeks. But we begin this whole book by considering the power of a leader and his influence in a church and how easy it is to rewrite the order of a leader's role in a church and a leader's role in our lives. And here's what I just want to end our sermon with this morning. As you come to the Lord's table in a few minutes, would you just spend some extra time praying for your pastors here? I am so blessed to work and serve alongside these guys. Would you pray for Delon and Josh as they get meaningful rest and, and Lord willing, return and serve in, with vitality and energy next year? Would you pray for Justin and Gabe, who's been newly officially the church? We haven't installed him yet, but he's officially one of the elders now, by the way. Me, Gabe, and Justin, along with our elder candidates, Jim and Ben and Tom and Casey, and over these next few months, as we learn to be a team together and care for this church well, lead this church well, make decisions to the best of our ability well, we've got a lot of pressing, exciting things, but it's going to require a lot of energy and time. Would you just pray for them? Would you pray for your deacons? We're getting ready to add. We've asked several people to come on deacons. We're going to present them to you too because the work of the church is growing. Would you just, as you hear the word that Paul's talking about leaders of these last several weeks, these last four chapters or so, would you just be mindful to pray for the leaders that are here? And if you're not a part of this church, will you pray for your leaders too? Will you go to them and tell them you're praying for them? They need you to do that. Okay? Now let's pray and let's prepare for the table this morning. Jesus, as we come now this morning and we thank you for your word and we thank you for the word you've given us. Um, 
I admit, Lord, I'm just preaching so many sermons these last few weeks on the nature of leadership and, the, and how, leadership can, how leadership in the church affects the church so much, positively and negatively. Jesus, I just pray that you would just be more and more committed to this church, more and more power seeping in this church to the work of your spirit. And I would pray for your people, your people, to be diligent in both praying for their, their leaders, following, so long as we are following Christ, and grow this church and those churches beyond us, Lord, doing the same. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, God, may our hearts be filled with great joy of the work that you've called us to here. And we love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.